1: This saga is about the ego of one of the world's best deal-makers ever, and
2: him getting his way.
3: He has shown that LVMH is willing to play dirty if needed in the pursuit of what it wants.
2: He's built an empire out of very little. He is somebody who has never shied from getting into a fight many of them which have ended in court. This doesn't happen very often when you cover
3: M&A. I mean, that something gets this public and combative, it's pretty rare.
1: His entire career has been a series of masterstrokes that even when he loses, he wins. It
3: just looks a bit strange if the government is helping the richest man
4: in the country get out of a deal. This is Behind the Money. I'm Amy Keen. In this episode, what happens to the rules of engagement for MA in the time of coronavirus? The saga of a deal derailed by the pandemic and by pride. A story we're telling in three parts with three FT reporters. And we start with the man at the center of it all, Bernard Arnault.
0: LVMH is a large group by French standard. Today, believe it or not, we are number one on the French uh, market cap.
4: Bernard Arnault is the richest man in France. Leila Aboud is the FT's Paris correspondent. She covers French industry, which, of course, includes the glamorous world of luxury and its billionaire bosses.
0: By international standards,
3: it's still very small. And I will be happy when we have maybe two or three times that market cap. I've seen him at events and at press conferences, and he has almost like a light feathery way of speaking. So everyone has to sort of lean in to hear him. But that sort of appearance belies a quite steely spine. His life's work has been to build the biggest luxury conglomerate in the world. It's called LVMH, and it owns brands like Louis Vuitton and Christian Dior and Moet Hennessy, all the brands that you would know
4: if you pay any attention to the finer things in life. Bernard Arnault's LVMH empire is today worth about 210 billion euro, built through a series of acquisitions. I had somebody tell me recently that he's essentially the most successful investment banker that there
3: ever was because he stitched together this company you know, by acquisitions and really largely
4: done himself. Arash Massoudi the corporate finance and deals editor at the FT, thinks that puts Bernard Arnault in another class.
1: So first thing you need to know about Bernard Arnault is that He is a master dealmaker. And what I mean by that is it's not just identifying the asset and agreeing a price and all this typical stuff that we associate with dealmaking. This is a guy who lives and breathes the game and the mastery of the game. And that's very much his state of mind and how he operates and why he's one of the world's richest people.
4: Luxury is a sector that is only so big. But over the years, LVMH has acquired some of the biggest brands we know. Think of Céline, Givenchy, Fendi. But there was something that Arnaud was missing, a crown jewel of sorts for his empire. So LVMH is smaller in so-called hard luxury,
3: which is basically sort of jewelry and watches and earrings, stuff like that. It's a bit of a hole in his portfolio. About a year ago, back in, uh, it was last fall in 2019, there started to be leaks in the media that LVMH was interested in buying Tiffany, the U.S. jeweler, people in the U.S. are familiar with from its trademark robin egg blue boxes and breakfast at Tiffany's and their flagship stores in New York.
1: The box that everyone knows about, the way it sits in the American psyche as a the poster of engagements and engagement rings. What Arnaud identified in Tiffany was a brand and a identity that is incredibly valuable.
3: A lot of people in the luxury sector were surprised because Tiffany was a bit seen as a bit perhaps middle markety for LVMH. LVMH is usually, you know, they own jewelry brands like Bulgari, you know, that are very, very expensive, whereas Tiffany has a little bit more of a mass audience.
1: When Bernard Arnault goes into Tiffany stores, what I imagine he sees is stores that have lost their luster, that have lost the luxurious experience. And what he saw is an undervalued asset.
4: Tiffany wasn't getting the same traffic in its stores. It wasn't selling to tourists in the way it once had. But the company had been doing what it could to turn things around under a new management team. Still, some thought that Tiffany could use a bit of a makeover.
1: So shares had been sort of lower than where they had been in the past. They settled an activist challenge where they added three board members. So Tiffany had lost a little bit of its luster.
4: But this is just the kind of thing Arno does. He takes a struggling brand, brings it into the LVMH machine, and reboots it. He thinks that he can plug it
3: onto the LVMH system and and expertise and bring it a little bit more upmarket, give it a sort of digital makeover, make it more relevant in Asia, especially in China. And that's where about 90% of the growth is coming from in, in luxury. So I think the bet was, take this sort of maybe a bit tarnished jewel and let's bring it up to LVMH level.
1: When I say he's a few steps ahead of you every time, in September of last year, He arrives in Texas.
3: LVMH just happened to be opening up a new factory in Texas for its Louis Vuitton brand, which is quite rare. Most of their goods, are they make them in Europe, in France or in Italy. And Bernard Arnault and a few of his children, who are all in the company, went to the U.S. for this kind of marquee event to open up this new factory, and they invited Donald Trump to the event.
2: Today, we continue the extraordinary revival of American manufacturing, And we proudly celebrate the opening of the brand new Louis Vuitton, a name I know very well. It cost me a lot of money over the years.
1: And at the time, President Trump joked LVMH and Louis Vuitton had cost him a lot of money over the years as they inaugurated this workshop where LVMH promised to make a thousand jobs.
3: Which just shows you sort of the power of these brands and and of these names and the power of arnault that he can have Donald Trump come to his ribbon cutting at his factory.
2: And Bernard, I want to thank you for the incredible job you do. You're an artist and a visionary, and I want to congratulate you because this is a great vision that you had for the state of Texas and for our country.
1: Now, if you think about it from what's actually going on in Bernard Arnault's mind, it is he is about to make a swoop on Tiffany's, which the world does not know about, but he as a foreign raider of a a prime US asset What you need to do is disarm the most disruptive person in America, and that's the U.S. president. You know, as we can see with other transactions where he's highly interventionist and one tweet can cause a lot of headache. He, anticipating this, disarmed the president before even the bid becoming public, going to Texas, announcing job creation, effectively cozying up to the president, smile, photo op, everything.
3: And apparently at that event, Bernardo sort of had a quiet word with with Donald Trump sort of saying, you know, we're, we're about to make a big investment in the U.S. And Trump later managed to sort of brag a bit about it.
1: And then, of course, a few weeks later, the news comes out that he's bid for Tiffany.
2: LVMH, the world's largest luxury goods company, has confirmed now it's reached a deal to buy Tiffany. The price tag, $135 per share in cash, $16.2 billion total. It's the largest ever in the luxury sector.
3: LVMH agreed to pay 135 dollars per share for Tiffany, um, which values the overall company at about 16 billion. I mean, to get the agreement, I don't know. Actually, had to raise his bid five times, which is a sign of how much he
1: really wanted it. The way in which he wanted the assets so badly led him to sign contracts that were pretty iron tight in terms of their ability to get out of them.
3: So once they agreed on a, a price, they, you know, will do what you do in any deal, which is that the lawyers and the bankers get to work behind the scenes to write what's called a merger agreement. And that's the contract that links the two parties together. And to do so, they would have had to get antitrust approvals in, in a number of different markets to prove that they weren't, you know, that wasn't a over-concentration of power in, in the business.
4: They would have had to, you know, do sort of legal filings and contract work and all that. And when all was said and done, the merger was supposed to be completed by November 24th, 2020.
1: I think for the Tiffany side, they felt pretty triumphant that they were able to get Bernard Arnault, the wolf and cashmere, as we call him, to pay so much for an asset that had been kind of down and out. And I guess the LVMH side felt good, too. I mean, in a pre-corona world, LVMH was looking pretty good. And they had concentrated quite a bit of the fashion industry going into this. Tiffany was going to be another prize for Arnaud to play with.
4: A few months later, a virus began to spread in China that would have far-reaching consequences. So I, I
3: remember going to the LVMH annual results presentation in Paris, which was like the last week of January. And LVMH is the first company in the luxury sector to report results and one of the first big companies in France to report. And because it was the annual results, Bernard Arnault himself was on the stage answering questions at this event.
0: J'aurais uh, trois questions. La première, évidemment, is on the, if you could make a point, s'il vous plaît, on the impact of the coronavirus.
3: And obviously, they got asked about the emerging health crisis in China because you, have to, you can't forget this about luxury. They rely enormously on China for growth and Chinese rich people traveling abroad buying luxury goods. So anything that kind of hits China is definitely going to affect LVMH. So they got the question very, very early.
0: If it lasts two months, or if it lasts two months and a half, it not terrible. If it had to last two years, it's another story.
3: And I remember him saying at the time, uh, well, we'll see, because if this lasts a few weeks or a couple months, it will be disruptive, but not that bad. But if it goes on for months and months, then all bets are
4: off. This is the part of the story where we see a familiar theme. The pandemic hit and then everything changed.
2: We've studied all the other countries. We've talked to people all across the globe about what they did, what they
3: Tiffany is in New York. That's their headquarters. Flagship stores are there. And New York goes into full lockdown.
2: Uh, Only essential businesses will be functioning. And,
3: you know, like every retail outlet, Tiffany's stores close down and, you know, their business
1: takes a huge hit. LVMH, you know, went into pretty pretty quickly went into self-care around the time of coronavirus. And what I mean by that is they did everything possible to preserve cash in their own company, or at least that's how they they would frame it.
4: Companies across sectors went into such self-care modes. Some stopped paying rent on leased property. Others paused dividend payouts to shareholders.
1: And Arnaud, looking at Tiffany, began to get really irate over the fact that Tiffany continued to pay its dividend and that Tiffany had not stopped paying rent to its landlords. So from his perspective, cash that would be needed to resuscitate this business was flowing out of the business and he had no means to stop it. And his level of irritation kept growing and growing uh, over that sort of March to July period. And so he attempted, I think on multiple occasions to kind of talk to Tiffany about that and get them to change course.
4: And then in June, Women's Wear Daily published a story that seemed a lot like a leak from the LVMH boardroom. Anyone who's ever covered
3: LVMH knows that this does not happen. There have been almost never leaks from the LVMH boardroom unless someone wants there to be leaks from the LVMH boardroom.
1: The LVMH board had become very concerned with the Tiffany deal and wanted some changes to that transaction. And immediately Tiffany's shares go down.
3: This was the first sign to people on the outside that all was not well in paradise with this marriage between Tiffany and LVMH that a potentially very rocky road was about to open up.
1: People start phoning around the sort of narrative around what's going on in the backdrop becomes more clear. You basically just kept getting indications that Arno was looking for ways to renegotiate a contract which was basically iron tight. We wrote a few pieces in our due diligence newsletter that when a master dealmaker like him has his back against the wall, what you try to do is to create leverage. By sort of uh, strategically leaking information that would then cause the Tiffany price to collapse. Because bear in mind, what happens in most big transactions, especially ones like this, what happens is hedge funds pile into the target company share, in this case, Tiffany, and try to bet on the likelihood of the transaction closing. And so when the stock fluctuates or is volatile, these guys basically have panic attacks, uh, and go into meltdown. And so if you can, if you can trigger them enough, you can probably get them to press the Tiffany board or the Target company board to just get some kind of certainty. And so he was very clearly trying to do that.
4: I guess that's my question. Did that work?
1: No, it didn't work at all. It has not worked to date.
4: So Bernard Arnault got creative.
2: It was September 8th. I was meeting with one of my dearest friends I hadn't seen for a long time because we have been separated because of the pandemic.
4: That's James Fontanella Khan, the FT's U.S. corporate finance and deals editor. And on that evening in September, he got a phone call.
2: This happens quite regularly if you're an M&A reporter. These late kind of calls, somebody giving you a tip or something. And I wasn't really quite prepared for, you know, how big the story was going to be. I get a call from one of my contacts who was very well informed about the negotiations and the kind of situation of where the deal was at at the moment. And this person told me something. Pretty shocking, which was that the next day, Tiffany was going to sue LVMH. And I said, like, why, why are you suing LVMH? I thought you guys are kind of moving your head towards getting the deal done. But actually, the next thing that this person told me was even more explosive.
4: LVMH had tried several tactics to bring Tiffany back to the negotiating table. There'd been the media leak, the attempt to spook shareholders. And now with the clock counting down to the November 24th deadline, they tried one last thing, a letter.
2: LVMH had sent a letter to Tiffany telling them that the French government had asked them to delay the closure of the deal as part of an effort of the French government to kind of respond to a series of tariffs that US President Donald Trump had imposed on European and in particular French luxury goods. Because there's been a long term dispute in Europe over these kind of tech giants who basically do not pay their fair share in taxes So basically, the French government has doubled down on this and has become pretty aggressive at kind of pursuing uh, tax revenues from these tech giants. Think of Amazon, Google. And so this delay would have made it impossible for LVMH and Tiffany to close the deal by the kind of settled deadline of November 24th.
4: This seemed odd. Why would the French government get involved in a trade dispute the European Union had with the U.S.?
2: Now, bear one thing in mind. European countries who are members of the EU, as France is, have jurisdiction over taxation on the national level. They do not have jurisdiction on trade matters. Everything related to trade has to be decided at the EU level because it's a single block
4: And why would the letter ask France's richest man to think of his country first and pose a multi-billion dollar acquisition?
2: Very few people could figure out whether the letter was actually legally binding. And it was written by the Minister of European Affairs. Still, it's kind of an important role, but it wasn't the Prime Minister. It wasn't definitely President Macron. It wasn't the Treasury. And so it begs the question of why is this minister getting involved in a deal? And so the suspicion was that Arnaud, who's known for being litigious, who's known for fighting hard to get a good deal, went to the government and seek their help. LVMH disputes this and they suggest the government came to them. But the way somebody described it to me, it's a bit like you want to skip school. And instead of asking your mom or your dad for a note to skip school, you go to your sister or your brother to get you out of trouble.
4: So back to that night in early September, James and the rest of the deal's reporting team sprung into action to confirm the story. But before they could break the news the next morning, they had to call LVMH.
2: The first time they learned about Tiffany suing them was when we called them for comment early on in the morning. They were shocked. And it's rare for somebody like her to to be shocked. The goal was really for him to kind of scare off Tiffany into kind of getting back to the negotiating table and give them the discount that he had been asking for repeatedly. What Arnaud did not expect was that Tiffany would actually sue them right away. That was his kind of, I think, big miscalculation. We have this from several people we've spoken to on both sides of of, of the battle, so to speak. He thought, you know, he could convince them to get back to the table. He's failed. And now he's facing a complex, very complicated legal battle in Delaware, which is not going to be easy.
4: The trial is now set for early January, and it will center around one main thing, the Material Adverse Effect Clause in the LVMH-Tiffany merger agreement.
2: It all comes down to whether the merger agreement that LVMH and Tiffany signed back in November 2019 is as airtight as it was believed to be at the time. And Tiffany is going to argue in court that it is, and that basically very simply... LVMH just needs to pay up and respect the agreement and stop dragging its feet. But the more interesting part is really on the LVMH side in their, in their countersuit, they're challenging this interpretation of the agreement and they make two key claims. The first argument that LVMH is going to make in court in January is that Tiffany and Tiffany's executives have not run the company in a prudent way in the aftermath of the pandemic. They think that they squandered cash that could have been shored up.
4: LVMH will argue that the things Tiffany did, like paying its rent on stores and paying out dividends to shareholders, were actually a departure from the normal course of action that a business would take during a pandemic.
2: The line that they're going to push is Tiffany did not run the business in a ordinary fashion. And they should have actually done the opposite to save this deal. Given that they didn't do that, we have a right to walk away. The second key point is that in these merger agreements, usually there are a series of carve-outs regarding material adverse effects. So material adverse effect is a reason for which you can actually walk away from the deal.
4: Some merger agreements will specify events like earthquakes or even a terrorist attack, things that would materially and adversely affect a company but wouldn't give the party's license to unwind the merger altogether.
2: So those catastrophes are somewhat excluded from the MAE clause. Now, what LVMH is arguing is that Tiffany went out of its way to include, for example, protests in France related to the famous kind of yellow vests, social unrest in Hong Kong as two kind of specific cases for which it would have not been allowed for LVMH to walk away from the deal. What Bernardo argues is that Tiffany did not add, as a carve-out, a pandemic or global health crisis. Given that there is no mention of pandemic in the so-called carve-outs, this gives LVMH a right to walk away from the deal.
4: There is a chance the two sides will settle before January. People familiar with Bernard Arnault's thinking told the FT that it's not that he doesn't want Tiffany anymore, he just wants it at a lower price. But if the trial does go ahead, it will be closely watched.
2: Very few deals are allowed to be renegotiated or even allow the buyer to walk away. These deals have very tight clauses. So it will be a test case for sure, um, because the pandemic has kind of redrawn a lot of things, even in the legal world. So it will be very closely watched by pretty much everybody who did a deal before the pandemic and has been thinking about Getting out of a deal or getting a discount on the original price they had agreed to pay for.
4: James, Arash, and Layla will be following this story closely, and they'll also be looking at what this means for future deal making. You can find their reporting in the FT and in the due diligence newsletter. You can check out the links in our show notes if you want to read more. And if you like this episode, it would really mean a lot if you'd subscribe or follow us on your podcast app of choice. If you really liked it, maybe you could leave us a review or even tell a friend. And if you want to get in touch directly, send us an email to ft.com or find me on Twitter at Amy P. Behind the Money is produced by Olu Akemi adisui Green Turner is our sound engineer, and Liam Nolan is our editor. We'll be back next week.